Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. For those who are new to listening, in our fortnightly podcast, we bring together dementia researchers from all areas of research to discuss their work and general career topics that will be helpful to early career researchers. And whilst mostly we talk about Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, our career topics should be of interest to anybody pursuing a clinical or academic career. I'm Adam Smith, and today I'm joined by four PhD students who are just taking their first steps into their PhD. Uh, Today, the PhD completion project estimates, and these are scary stats just to freak out particularly Felicity, who I'll I'll introduce in a moment. Um, The PhD completion project estimates that only 55 to 64% of people who begin a PhD in STEM particularly finish, and 56% in the social sciences, and 49% in the humanities. So those are particularly scary stats. I have to say, though, I I haven't necessarily seen that in in my work. I think most of the people I've come across who've started a PhD have finished, but let's, let's go on and introduce our guest today. So today we're going to discuss what motivates uh, our guests to follow this path, what motivated them, what life's been like for each of them, sharing their questions and stories so far. So hopefully others in the same situation will know that they're not alone. So we're going to talk today about what it's like to take those very first steps into a PhD. So I'm delighted to introduce Tiffany James. Tiffany is an excellent darts player and a PhD student looking at equity in service provision for people with dementia and their families at University College London. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Adam. Uh, I'd also like to introduce Chloe Tulip, who is studying sleep in dementia at Swansea University. That is when she's not playing roller derby. Hi, Chloe. Hello. I've also got uh, Felicity Slocum, uh, who will be studying uh, identity in dementia at Loughborough University. Um, And when I asked for a fun fact, she told me that she has a very squishy nose, Um, (laughs) which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Uh, Hi, Felicity. Hi, Adam. I definitely regret saying that one. And last but not least, we have artist and animal lover, Brendan Kamein, who's studying uh, his PhD at the Royal College of Art, looking at environment in care homes for people with dementia. Hi, Brendan. So hello, everybody. Felicity, I I can't help but think that maybe you and uh, Chloe need to get together and and swap swap hobbies, because with a a nose like that, you'd be awesome at roller derby, right? Yeah, it would be really great whenever I fell on my face, you know, there'd be no broken nose. Exactly, that's perfect. And, <laughs> and um, people who haven't uh, met our guests yet could, of course, uh, see their, their profiles on the, on the website. But uh, Tiffany, coming to you first, do you play in a, uh, a league for darts? No, I definitely don't play in a league. I did consider joining one uh, when I lived in Brighton. It was an all-ladies league of mostly retired ladies. Then I moved to London, and now I just play at the pub. And, and have you ever have you had a, ever had a hundred and eighty? No, no, I'm not no. that good. What about only... the ball? Are you reliable on closest to the ball? Exactly, that's kind of my strong point. Yeah. You didn't rush out and immediately buy a dartboard as soon as lockdown started. No, luckily I had a friend that had one. This was before lockdown. That's how I got into it. So I just spent many, 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 many nights perfected my dart skills. Okay, so seriously though, so what, what year are you in and could you maybe tell us a little bit about your studies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, in my first year, I'm 10 months in at UCL. Um, my project is funded for three years by the NIHR and it was a project that I applied for, so kind of generally looking at equity in service provision for people with dementia and their families. So I'm starting quite broadly looking at different minority groups and then kind of funneling down to people from minority ethnic groups and then more specifically people from a South Asian background in the UK. So that's the kind of, um, yeah, brief overview of my project. Fantastic. That's, that sounds interesting. And, and, and so you, so this is a, a supervisor who advertised for a specific project they'd already got in mind. 
That's right, yeah. Well, that's quite interesting because I think we'll come to that later because there's obviously people pursue and how they end up in a PhD is slightly differently. And I do wonder whether when you apply for a, a PhD, almost more like a job than through funding of your own, whether that's easier to come into something that's already to some extent fairly well defined as opposed to trying to define that for yourself. Well, um, it was interesting, even though it was a quite a defined project, I still had a lot of free reign about what I was going to do, which in a way was hard as well, trying to figure out what I should be doing. I, well, that was gonna, what I was going to say, actually, was I suppose to some extent it's, it's nice to come in, but also as well whether that can be quite inhibiting, particularly if the supervisor's got a very clear view as to what they want done as part of that work, as to whether you get to make it your own still. Um. Chloe, let's come to you next. Roller derby, that's a, that's a pretty tough sport. I, and I have to say, I didn't know this term. I did go away and look it up. Are you a jammer? I <laughs> did see that and I thought, wow, that's a really good knowledge of derby there. <laughs> no. So, no, unfortunately I'm not because uh, they like us to be really safe. So in order to play a full match, you have to pass minimum skills and um, the laps are the thing that I'm stuck on. So you have to do 27 laps in five minutes, which is so hard. <laughs> so hopefully I'll, I'll get to play soon and be a jammer. So that's, uh, so you've got to do 27 laps speedy on, and these are roller skates, right? Nobody uses roller blades in roller Yeah, they're derby. quad skates, yeah. yeah. That sounds cool. And uh, of course, we're going to talk about this later, but having, keeping your sanity by having outside activities and, and people to, to talk to and things is important yeah. too. So what, can you tell us a little bit about your studies, what year you're in? And... Sure. So I'm about nine months into my PhD and I'm studying at Swansea University. Um, so my PhD is looking into sleep and dementia. So the title of it, which I've written down because it is a mouthful, <laughs> is uh, so it's looking at the influence of sleep on psychophysiological and cognitive functions in healthy older people and people with vascular dementia. So some of the things that I'll be looking at are, I'll be doing some neuroimaging studies later on down the line with near-infrared spectroscopy. Um, and I'll also be looking at mismatch negativity, which is an event-related potential, which is just uh, like a measurable um, brain response using EEG um, in response to an odd stimuli. So if I were to say, beep, beep, boop, <laughs> Um, the last boop is um, part of a change detection. So you'd actually have a measurable response to that. And um, you can use that in early detection. So we'll be doing some sleep studies with that and things and looking at emotional memory consolidation. So it's kind of a mix of things that I'm looking at. So. And well, and sleep's definitely come up the agenda. It's been quite high profile. There was lots of uh, discussion about the importance of sleep at the AIC conference last month, um, particularly as a as a risk factor, but also as well looking at how the brain works. So you you're in a in a good place for, or not that you're already thinking about post PhD, I'm sure. But oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> one but step one step at a time. <laughs> And, and sleep's always an issue. I've been involved in a few sleep studies and they're always quite difficult to recruit to as well, I think, mm. um, particularly yeah. getting people into those sleep labs. So do you, you will have lots of interaction with people living with dementia as well as part of your work? Yeah, so I think as part of the first steps of my PhD, it's really important to make links within dementia because prior to starting my PhD, I actually had no experience in dementia. I was mostly focused on um, acquired brain injury and I just so happened to get the dream PhD for me uh, shortly after and I was a bit worried I didn't have much experience so now I'm creating links with the community and I'm sort of uh, becoming like a volunteer befriender things like that but I think lockdowns had a real impact on the ability to recruit for sleep studies so now we're having to do lots of things online with questionnaires which aren't as rigorous and aren't ideal, but the universities support me really well through that. So, yeah. Having to think out of the box and maybe turn to technology more as well. I mean, obviously we're doing that ourselves as individuals, but turning to that for your research as well must be, must mm. be quite 
quite tricky. And, and I don't know about you, but I do like there to be a direct line of sight between my work and the people that are benefiting it too. And, and I know talking to quite a lot of people who are working uh, lab-based research are trying to do more to come out so they can connect their work to the people that are going to benefit. So it, it's, it's always quite interesting, I think, to have that role. But equally, it can be, I don't know how you found it. I, I've spoken to quite a few people that found that quite hard to start with, you know, just knowing how to talk to people, um, what to say, what not to say can be quite tricky and there's no training for this. It's, it's something, yeah. how, how did you find that? Um, so I've been kind of lucky in the sense that before starting this, I worked with people with uh, acquired brain injuries for three years on a one-to-one -one basis. So I've, I've done lots of training on sort of getting to know your clients really well and kind of having that lived experience of what is okay what isn't okay and essentially having that thing where you're like a friendly professional or professional. yeah friendly professional not professional friend <laughs> um <laughs> so that's been really really helpful so hopefully I'm I'm going to use that to take with me but also I've got some really lovely people in the Swansea Carer Centre who are helping me and coaching me through and really really like supporting me which is really nice because as you say I think it's more of a lived experience thing to acquire. And the, the Welsh uh, advocacy groups and things like that are fantastic as well. I, I know uh, Chris Roberts quite well who I know is very active in in Wales and I, I've spoken at a few uh, dementia friendly kind of meetings and things there as well so you've got a great community of people yeah. to work with in Swansea. Yeah, I'm really lucky. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and Felicity, I'm, I, I'm not going to pick on your cartilage anymore. <laughs> Just tell, tell us about your work. I mean, obviously, so you're, you, we spoke offline about this before, so you haven't quite started yet. Um, no, so I'm starting in October. Um, yes, yeah, so the project is about identity um, in people living with dementia. Um, so I'm quite lucky in that um, my supervisors have already collected um, some data um, which they've kind of they've looked at a bit but not there's like so much more to look at into it and um, so there's like a data set of uh, interviews and like just observations of people with dementia and their carers their family members and also um, in a memory clinic as well so you've got the two contexts of uh, like a professional environment and a domestic environment. Um, so I'm going to use conversation analysis uh, to look at how issues of identity are kind of talked about and raised um, in those settings and kind of how the like healthcare professionals as well respond to someone who's um, got dementia saying stuff that's, you know, issues about, you know, losing their memories and all the changes that they're going through. And um, so that's kind of one of the main focuses that the project will have. Um, and then as well, and um, there'll be like a big um, survey of the general public uh, looking at um, fear of dementia or dementia worry, um, as dementia is kind of one of the most feared um, conditions, um, even more so than cancer um, now. And it's kind of looking at how the increased media representation of dementia in recent years has impacted on how people think about dementia and what they think it entails. Um, and as kind of a follow up to that, I'd like to uh, get um, people living with dementia involved and to kind of like, look at different like clips of um, the like, media, um, people talking about what they think dementia is and uh, people living with dementia actually describing like their experiences of what um kind of people have like maybe how like once they were diagnosed how people kind of viewed them differently um from what they've seen in the media from what they've seen in newspapers um so yeah really excited to get started um a bit nervous but yeah it's really interesting to me so i think i think i should be um one of the ones that completes it hopefully <laughs> Well, I have to say, for I've, I've spoken to quite a lot of people before they, they're going to start their PhD, and you've got a pretty clear picture there, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, you'd be speaking quite <laughs> eloquently about what you're going to do. I don't think you're yeah. going to have any well, problems it was, at all. It's a similar situation to Tiffany, and it was a project that I applied to. Um, so I'd previously, uh, the year before, applied for a master's and PhD um, 
ESRC funding, uh, which I didn't get, but I decided I'd try and just do the master's anyway. Um, and then I reapplied uh, this year and luckily um, got it. So yeah, it was quite nice to have a project that was kind of thought through already. And it was, it was quite similar to what I'd previously proposed, which was nice, but it had like extra elements that I hadn't thought of. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a good thing to have a proposed project, um, but as, as well as what, like what Tiffany said, um, my supervisors are quite happy for me to, you know, see where I'd like to go with it and focus on different elements um, more so than others. So that's really good to have that flexibility too. Brilliant. Well, that's that's exciting. And doing it for Yorkshire as well, as a proud Yorkshireman myself, yeah. I can say that. <laughs> and, uh, were you inspired? I don't know if anybody, any of you seen, but uh, Selena Ray is a... Uh, works at University College London as well where I work and she has recently kind of had some profile out of the being a working class northerner who's now a professor do you do you find things like that inspiring is that yeah definitely like it's quite weird for me because I've got my both of my parents are southern and then I've always lived in Yorkshire so it's kind of like I have like the mix of of both and like I don't have I don't have a particularly strong accent so I think when people meet me they don't necessarily there's like certain words I think and phrases that you can tell um but otherwise yeah but yeah it's really good to see like you know people from similar situations to me going out there and achieving what they want to achieve I think, I think you're being optimistic in saying you haven't got an accent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't have an accent. I just don't think it's... Like, you when can definitely tell you're from Sheffield. I mean, <laughs> I mean, no, I'm the same. I'm from Leeds. I've lived in the South. Oh, I've been nice. moving to Oxford when I was yeah. 18. And, and I've kind of... Um, I recognise it in myself, even though I don't think I sound like I'm from Yorkshire, but everybody says, yeah, you do. Yeah. No hiding that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite Ned Stark. Do you know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> anyway, that, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us, Felicity. I did just have another question. Has your start date stayed on time because of the pandemic or have you um, had? Yeah, it has. Um, when, like, the, when I got the offer confirmation through, there was, um, like an option to defer it if I wanted to but it's still going ahead um, at the moment the students are going in PhD students are able to go to the office like one day a week um, but they're hoping that by October it'll be more like two or three days a week um, yeah and so do, uh, does that mean you're about to make a, a big move as well are you are you moving I've already moved yeah I've um, got a flat so yeah I moved in about three weeks ago so yeah I just wanted to make it kind of homely before I started the PhD and everything went a bit chaotic. <laughs> so, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll come to talk about that, but, but that, that's another element, right? I mean, not only have you got the stresses of thinking about how the study's going to work, but you've got that combined that with, with the moving away to a new place, potentially moving away from friends as well, combine that with the stresses of, of this kind of scary thing that is doing a PhD. Um, Brendan, we haven't forgotten you. I'm going to, <laughs> I will come to you. And I think it's fair to say that you and I are probably around the same age. We're, we're a little bit older than, than, our, than our, the other guests. Um, and, but so you're not coming to this as a first career. This is something you've, you're continuing your study. Yeah, I'm a teacher and um, I just decided that I wanted to do something um, around dementia because I had um, a, a time where I was a carer for my aunt with dementia and I had to put her into a care home. And prior to that, I knew nothing about dementia. So that prompted me to go and do an MA um, with a focus on dementia. Well, actually with the carers of people with um, who were looking after mostly their husband or wife with dementia. And um, that was great and I loved it. So I decided to just carry on really. And that's, I mean, that's, that's interesting. And of course you had a different perspective as well. Is this just because we get a little bit older and, and wiser doesn't mean that, that stepping into a PhD isn't, you know, equally as, as daunting, I guess, perhaps more so because you kind of slightly, you're aware of everything else. It's a bit like starting that new job where you've, I've started new jobs where you sit there twiddling your thumbs and going, okay, is somebody going to tell me what to do? And, and you're, and, and I know from your bio that you're funding this yourself. Does that mean that you are, you're self-driven? You're having to design this? Yeah, I, I am. And um, because I'm part-time, um, I sort of, 
I was really panicked about doing this in, in initially and thinking, you know, where is it going? But then I thought, actually, it's I'm doing it for myself and hopefully for the benefit of people with dementia. And that's my focus, really, um, to just do something. And my PhD is a, a mixture of um, practice and theory. So at the end of it, I have to produce something that's hopefully useful for people with dementia. So, yeah, so that's exciting for me because my background is is art and um, I'm in the School of Design in RCA. So I'm sort of getting used to the whole idea of working as a designer rather than an artist as well. Um, artists tend to sort of um, ask questions where design is sort of us trying to come up with solutions and I'm sort of struggling a bit with that but I'm slowly getting there um but no it's 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 really interesting um and yeah I'm loving it so this is something when you say something useful do you mean implementable is this is this some kind of like intervention that could be because I know you mentioned care homes in your yeah. Yeah. Is this something that they can, uh, like, uh, activity-based, or is this something useful? Well, what I'm hoping to do is um, what, well, a few things. Uh, I mean, I had to look around a few care homes, and I, I, I wasn't really impressed, I have to say, with the environment in a lot of them. So I, I wanted the residents to have more choice. So what I'm thinking of doing is looking at technology, which I think this pandemic has also thrown up that a lot of care homes need to be more um, tech, tech friendly. So I'm looking at technology um, to um, actually create more visual environments in a care home and the residents can actually take control of that visual environment. And I'm looking at it through because I've done quite a bit of research around their attachments with soft toys or a soft blanket. So I'm looking at if I can integrate that through the use of sensors and uh, a sort of projections to create um, a more visual environment, but the, the, um, the resident can take more control of and have more autonomy over their environment as well. That's fascinating. Oh, thank you. Brendan, I, I know as well at the AIC, one of the exhibitors had had done something with projection where they projected moving images that uh, from above a table that you could interact with, and if you touched yeah. the table, you could move things move things around. And I, I, I think maybe Chloe is they do things like that in brain injury as well, don't they? They I think some of that sensory uh, stuff. Yeah, so there's, uh, as you said, like the interactive new, I don't know, are they projectors? I'm not sure what they are, but I know they're really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Honestly, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. I know, we've, I, I, I know we're going to talk about what it's like to, to kind of take those first steps in your PhD, but I wanted to make sure we, everybody knows kind of what you're working on, because I think those differences are key and, and can influence particularly about what you're studying and how how those first days are about how you arrived at that. So Tiffany, sorry, I've forgotten already. Remind me, how long have you been studying now? Um, 10 months in for my PhD. 10 months. Okay. So it's about the same length of time as Chloe. So tell me, how have those, how have those 10 months been? I would say the first month was hard. Um, spent a lot of time staring at my computer screen, trying to figure out what I was doing. I remember crying at my desk at one point because I just had absolutely no idea where to start. And everyone just said, go away and read, read around the literature and figure out what you want to do. And eventually things fell into place and the questions came up. But before that, I felt completely lost. It took about a month and a half to get a bit of structure into what I was doing and then even longer to develop it more. But yeah, the first month was hard. I think I'm constantly reminded that I've, have friends that have kind of come away to do fellowships and things like that and saying you can't be too hard on yourself in those particularly in that kind of first two three months because I think we're so used to being told what to do if you like particularly in undergraduate work that then suddenly sitting there and having to be self-driven and decide for you it's hard right 
yeah and it was quite um kind of a creative process I don't think of myself as a very creative person I'm more of a kind of structured process driven person I like doing all those things but having to come up with something myself was hard but I can already tell that my skills at doing that have got better over the PhD so it's really nice to see that developing. How, how were those first few months for you Chloe? Honestly I'd say very very similar to Tiffany's. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure if I cried but I'm pretty sure I was holding them back at the desk <laughs> but I think I, I did feel a bit like a duck out of water to begin with and I was almost scared of asking my supervisors questions because I felt like if I asked a question it would raise the idea that I clearly didn't know what I was talking about I didn't know what I was doing and I was not the right person for the PhD <laughs> so then I kind of did like my supervisors I'm really lucky they're both really really lovely and easy to chat to and I remember I said something and I was like oh sorry if this sounds silly and my supervisor was like no 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 don't ever say that you know just ask questions there's no such thing as a stupid question and then I think from that I really went away and had to coach myself on I'm not going to know everything that's the reason why I'm doing the PhD because and I'm starting from a zero point and there are going to be a million questions along the way so it's best to just say them and I feel like that process really then started you know gave me traction and I started then feeling a lot more comfortable with it because even if I didn't know I, would, I could just ask then. And um, just coming back to you again Tiffany did did you feel like you were prepared for that did that come as a surprise? I think it was a bit of a surprise I'd just come straight from a master's at UCL um, which again is yeah quite structured you're kind of you can choose from a list of questions that you answer you know you're doing an assignment um, so yeah having that kind of free reign did feel different but now that now that I feel like I've got a plan I'm back on track with kind of my um, you know the structure of things things can change but at least I've got a little bit of an idea of where I'm supposed to be heading but I think it was a surprise at the beginning yeah and was your I mean was I I assume, I mean, not, not all supervisors are amazing. I mean, we've, we've done a whole podcast uh, about 12 months ago on finding the right fit of a supervisor and almost, you know, making a really careful decision as to, I suppose it's a little bit different if you apply for a job that comes with the supervisor rather than seeking one out. And if you are quite keen, I guess, I don't know how many people apply and then decline because they've divide, decided I don't think I'm going to get along with that supervisor um, if if offered. How have you gotten along with your with yours? Well um, really well they're, they're really supportive and I was lucky that um, two of them actually supervised me for my master's dissertation so I got to see whether we worked well together so that was a really nice opportunity um, and yeah very very approachable um, like like you Chloe no such thing as a silly question um, but I definitely had that feeling as well of not wanting to ask too many questions at the beginning and thinking I should just be, I should just be doing it. But they always said that wasn't the case as well, but it's hard to take that on board. So the takeaways from that really sound like, I might, obviously I haven't come to you Felicity because hopefully you're sitting there and digesting this and thinking, right, okay. Um, so definitely don't be too hard on yourself in those first few months. Do take advantage of these supervisors don't be afraid to approach them and talk to them as well I mean obviously I don't want to get because we are going to record another podcast later today which will be out in two weeks time with some people who've come out the other side of a PhD getting their top tips so I'm sure they'll do but so it's it's okay to feel a little bit lost at the start How, what about you Brendan because you had a you know your slightly different perspective yeah and I had a break between doing my MA as well so getting into the whole mindset of studying again was tricky. And we have, um, I'm sure a lot of you have um, doctoral training weeks. Um, and the first week was a really intense doctoral training week. And we had just a series of lectures and seminars. And I started to self-doubt and thinking, gosh, am I going to get through this? And, um, but yeah, so... I think what I have found really difficult though, it's a very solitary process and it's quite isolating. And I think that since the pandemic, it's been even more isolating. And because I'm part-time, 
I only have supervision once every six weeks. So there's quite a long gap in between um, my supervisions, but my supervisors are very good. Um, and I can email or make telephone calls to them as well. I think the isolating thing kind of comes up, particularly kind of during lockdown. Um, I guess it depends to some extent on your domestic arrangements, you know, whether you're house sharing and mixing with other people that are studying. Felicity, you mentioned you've just moved, you've just moved into a, is this university accommodation? Um, are you? No, so I've moved into a flat on my own. So um not sure if I'll live to regret that maybe, but um, I'm quite lucky in that um, one of my best friends lives just around the corner. Um, and I also did my undergrad and master's at Loughborough. Um, so there's people that I know that are still around and a girl that did uh, the same master's as me um, is just finishing her first year of her PhD. So I've kind of got um, a few friends as well around, which is um, really good. And of course, universities are open again, so you can you know, mostly, I guess everybody's returning to campuses and can, can mix with people in the, because I think that does come up again, is, is seeking out people who are in the same situation as you to try and talk to them. I guess, Brendan, it's tricky for you because I can't imagine there are many people doing a PhD at the Royal College of Art in dementia. No, there aren't. And my supervisor's actually, dementia's not her thing either. So um, that's a bit tricky. But my second supervisor is very much into, um, um, sort of neurology and the brain so that that's helpful as well actually we're not opening in September we are still having all our lessons and seminars and tutorials online to at least January okay well that's uh, well I guess every university is taking this slightly differently aren't they mm. so those so those early days I mean uh, did you also uh, coming back to you Chloe did you did you have some study, some study activities arranged in your first couple of months? You know, those, those learning weeks. Um, yeah, we had uh, an induction week, um, which was kind of nice because I got to meet all the other PhD students on the psychology floor. And I'm also really lucky because we're all put in an office together. So there's two big offices and it's really social. There's, there's one girl there who's just the key socializer. She's always organizing, you know, drinks and dinners and things like that. So that's really handy. And then they, they take you around all of the key staff that you, you'd be handy to know and introduce you. So it all feels really friendly and supportive. And that, that first week it happens um, like right at the start. So it is, is good timing and a good week. And how have you how have you found studying for a PhD different from the undergrads? You you I can't remember. You did an MSc before. Yeah, so I did um, BSc in psychology at Swansea and MSc in clinical psychology at Swansea. And now I'm at Swansea. <laughs> You're staying at Swansea. Do you know well, well, do you know what that often comes up as people going, "Oh, well, you should move around." But actually, I think particularly if you're doing a PhD, knowing who your supervisors are, yeah. knowing that already having been comfortable with the place and the environment, I think can, can make a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I think it's Swansea because there's so many beaches here and it's, it's a city, but it's not too big and everybody's Welsh and really lovely. <laughs> so yes, yeah, it's, it's really enjoyable. I forgot your question. What did you ask me? <laughs> no, I was, yeah, how did you find studying for undergraduate degree compared to this last few months of your PhD? Oh yeah, okay. Um, I think the main, the main difference really is that with MSc and BSc you have core modules that you don't really get to choose from to an extent and sometimes there might be stuff that you're not so interested in studying and then revising and things like that feels really laborious and arduous. But I'm, I feel really grateful because this is my absolute dream PhD. I don't think I could have chosen one better myself. So um, it doesn't feel like that. And it's nice to study something really in depth and just one topic. So that's really nice. So if anything, I actually prefer it and it feels easier, but I don't know if something's lurking around the corner. <laughs> about to make me not feel that <laughs> and you're you're full-time for three years yeah yeah how about you tiffany um i mean it's yeah it's a very different experience to undergrad and, and msc just because it's maybe less structured 
Um, I hated my undergraduate studies, so it's much. I'm having a much better time now with my PhD, probably just because I'm, I'm a bit older and just generally happier. Um, and like like Chloe said, actually, it's something that I'm really interested in, not having to do anything, you know, um, like a core module. Um, so if you really hated undergrad, why, why on earth would you stay in, ac in academia? I, I didn't. I left for four years and I worked. Um, I worked in the third sector and then as a support worker for people with dementia with the Alzheimer's Society, which I absolutely loved. Um, but it was during that job that I, I kind of had a caseload of maybe 100 people a year. And, and I just felt like actually I wanted to do a bit more, maybe do something from the top so that it could kind of trickle down and and impact more people in a positive way. So that's why I came to do the masters with the um, idea of them doing a PhD. And I'm so glad I came back because I love academia now. And, and I think that's important for me. I think having, being passionate about the subject has, has got to be there deep down at the core of this, because if you don't really care, if you're just doing this because you want, you know, the, the doctorate or you couldn't think of anything better to do. I, 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 they're probably the people that fall into that 40% that don't finish. I think the people like you who are, so I think you also do really have to care and it's got to be there at the core to, to drive that success. I don't know how you, if you'd agree. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, it's, uh, I think the great thing about dementia research is that it does have a real world impact that's positive and it feels that you're working towards something that's actually going to benefit people in real life and that's like so much more valuable than going out and chasing a job for money I think. So <laughs> as I mentioned in two weeks time I'm going to be talking to a bunch of people that have come out the other side and I'm really interested you know tell me what what do you wish, I mean, what do you need to know? What, what questions should I be putting to them? Felicity, I'm going to come to you first. What, what do you want to know from that old hand? Um, I said, like, it's so hard to think because obviously I haven't started yet. Like the questions haven't come. But yeah, I suppose it's just the kind of the unknown, like how you actually would structure your like, time management, I think is going to be a big thing, like what they've learned from the PhD of looking back um, how their time development has um, developed, I guess, um, and strategies for that, um, as well as maybe like, I've never published research before. Um, so I'm looking to publish my master's dissertation. So any advice on that and kind of like the whole review process and uh, that like they were talking about on the WhatsApp group about getting loads of comments from reviewers and stuff. And that's something that like I've never had to um, deal with before in my other studies so that was something that would be really interesting to know as well. I think whenever I found myself being uncertain what to do I kind of I I tend to kind of turn to the things that make me feel like I'm being productive but I feel quite comfortable with so reading papers kind of burying myself in a literature review uh, always feels like a safe place because it feels like I'm not doing nothing. I'm not sitting there thinking, oh God, what should I be doing? You're, you're using your time valuably quite, whether it will be useful or not later on, but at least I felt like I was doing something. Um, actually, maybe we'll come to you, Chloe, to talk about that. So talk us through, what does a typical day, week look like for you now? Um, hmm. <laughs> okay, a pre-lockdown. <laughs> oh yeah okay so I'm a I'm definite night owl so I'm much more productive in the evening so I, I do tend to have quite slow mornings um and I'll just walk my dog and just do all the admin bits and then I tend to sort of sit down from about 12 in the afternoon until about four-ish and then I'll revisit later on in the evening so I have like a little break where I'll go for a run or do something fun um and I think I'm, I work well if I don't have a rigid structure because otherwise I look too far to the future and go, oh gosh, that's so much work that I've got to do. So I like to say, do you know what, if you want a day off tomorrow, fine, but that means you've got to work on Saturday, things like that. Um, but that's my, that's my week. So you're one of those people who likes to set yourself some kind of short-term goals and go, are you a to-do list person? Do you? Yeah. I like, I like doing the easy wins, you know, like just writing something on the to-do list, which doesn't need to be written down but something that I can tick off and go oh look what I've accomplished <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I know that feeling. How about you, Brendan? Because it's a bit different, kind of yeah, part-time. I'm a morning person. So generally I start work at around 10 and I definitely have a to-do list and it's usually things that I'm halfway through and I know I'm going to finish so I can tick things off and feel good about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and um, then there's a sort of long-term things that I think that sort of going to take a, a farewell, but I'll, I'll start work on it. Um, and m my supervisors told me a few times to be kind to myself. So I'm sort of taking that advice as well. And I've actually taken about a week and a half off recently and feeling much better and more sort of um, focused in a way. I think it's really good to give yourself a, a break and step away from it and um, come back to it with sort of fresh eyes and new thoughts, really. I, I would agree. I think taking those first few months to find your feet, I mean, these are long programs. It's a three to five year thing, depending mm. on, you know, what, you, what you're doing and, and taking time to get, it, to get it right, to feel comfortable. I think rather than putting too much pressure on yourself in that first kind of six, 12 months is, is important. But what's your days look like, Tiffany? Mine are very structured. Um, maybe might seem a little bit over the top, but it works well for me. So yeah, I, I'm, I get up and I'm at my desk by nine. Um, and I like to think forward to all the things I've got to do. So I did just a couple of days ago, I thought I've got a presentation in October, a presentation in November, my upgrade, I need to hand that in at this point so that I can get the feedback. So pretty much planned out every day for the next two months. That's roughly so you, what I should be working on. So you you very much in that treating this like it's a, a job. Mm -hmm. You haven't fallen back to falling out of bed at 11 and... No, and I guess, and I mean, I don't know what it's like. Like Chloe. <laughs> 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 no, I, th I think I'm, I just got into the nine to five mindset for my um, work and it works for me. And then in the evenings I can completely switch off. And the weekends I, I switch off. Um, it works really well for me. It's interesting. I wonder whether people who continue from right from being 18 at undergrad in education right through to the end of the PhD, particularly if they stay at the same place, how, how easy it is to change that mindset. Because Chloe, I mean, I'm not picking on you here, joking about your <laughs> late nights, late mornings, but I guess you're in the same place now that you were in five years ago as an undergrad and yeah as, as people we move on but I wonder whether it makes any difference moving institutions makes you know kind of gives you that reset in your head did you manage to to reset for a new course or does it feel like it's all just continued um I think because I was working full-time so during my undergrad and master's I worked full-time through both um and uh, I think towards the end of my master's I was feeling a bit burnt out because it was just too much but my my shifts were 8am till 8am the next day so I'd sort of get there and sleep and then go home the next morning and then I'd you know be doing stuff for papers or my dissertation and it was just all too much um, and I, I did I did think about perhaps doing the like sort of nine to five but I just realized like my I've always been a night owl so this time I'm kind of again, the same with you, Brendan, just being a bit kind to myself and saying like, this is the best way that I work. And it does, it does sound funny and I do like laughing at it, but it, I guess it's like works for me. And it's also, it's nice to talk about it though, because I think lots of us night outs do feel like there is a bit of a stigma with it because um, I've listened to so many podcasts. Obviously I love sleep. <laughs> so about the stigma about waking up late and because it doesn't sit with society's views um so I remember when I first started I did have an honest chat with my supervisor and I said I might not be available at 9am for the next three years um <laughs> <laughs> like that's absolutely fine you know you do you so I was like oh great will do thanks <laughs> and I have to say I feel as healthy and the best I've ever been it's it's really it's great <laughs> I, I'm the same. I, I work best in an evening. You know, I'll kind of return to my desk at 8 p.m., 9 p.m. in the evening. And then when, you know, everything's quiet and it's 
it's a bit dark outside is when I'll, there are less distractions. I, I'm, I'm very easily distracted and, and in the evening there are less distractions. There's no emails coming in and people messaging you or calling you. Um, how about you, Felicity? Are you preparing for this? Are you? Um, yeah, well, I've been working as a research assistant. I literally started um, on the first day of lockdown. So I've been working from home, trying to do like a, a nine till five routine for like the last six months. So I feel like that has helped me kind of get back into the mindset of like doing research and working around that out around those hours. And yeah, I am an early riser as well. So I probably will do that. But as, as well, I kind of have like a after lunchtime, I always have like an afternoon slump where I just kind of like need a, a like a half an hour to just kind of have a cup of tea and get myself um, ready to continue. Um, but once I get through that, I can usually continue until um, like five. But yeah, I, I kind of like the idea of treating it as a job and having the weekends off because um, like all my friends and family and stuff will be working um, to that routine. So it makes it kind of easier for like if you want to do stuff on the weekends. Um, so yeah. I'm going to try and do that. It might not go quite to plan. So does, uh, nobody else can see this because this is of course audio, but uh, can you put your hand up if you, if you have a job as well, if you work as well as studying? Oh, so uh, Tiffany, Brendan are still working as well and you're finding time to, to do that. And I guess that's probably another reason why you guys need a, some, some fairly fixed structure to, to your day. Yeah, most of my, um, I have kind of four little jobs, but they're all within the university. So um, sometimes I use my, well, what I would be spending time on my PhD doing, just paid work instead. Um, so I think there's a kind of an agreement that you can uh, kind of afford to uh, spend one day a week on paid work and do a PhD. You can kind of manage that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm... I'm I'm conscious we've been talking quite a while. I'm, I'm just going to quickly read through because I had a big, long list of questions to come to for everybody here. So we talked about if you knew what to expect. And it sounds like it sounds like most of you were fairly well prepared in so much as you were. But it, it, it sounds like that not coming with a fixed set of instructions like perhaps your MSc did, did come as a little bit of a take a little bit of getting used to perhaps. Would that be fair to say? Mm -hmm. yeah and so the advice to others that are starting this summer and felicity is is don't be so don't be hard on yourself kind of ease into it you know learn to relax and and wait and talk to your supervisors that they're not all monsters <laughs> some might be but i'm sure they're not <laughs> um we also talked about whether it was different from your undergraduate degrees, and it sounds like to, it, it is, right? I mean, it's significantly different. You haven't got the revision, the coursework. I wonder, I'm, I'd be interested to ask you all that same question in another year's time, because at, at the moment you've still, does the finish still seem quite far away? And, and when you get into that last year, that pressure to to finish your thesis, that, that pressure with your viva, whether it, it goes back to feeling more like studying. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if we'll, we'll come back to that one later. Um, family. I mean, is, I'm going to ask this question. So family and friends, um, are they use? I mean, are they useful? Cause I, I so many people particularly who work in, in sciences do find it hard to talk to their family because they don't necessarily understand and you can't explain things to them and so they're very generally supportive but you can't how have you found your has it been helpful to talk to your families tiffany um not really no my parents don't really understand what a phd is they know that i'm not going to be a medical doctor now they finally get that bit but um they are they disappointed? Ask, <laughs> well, but maybe, maybe. But they, they ask, how is my course going? It's not, it's not really a course. I'm doing research. And then it's the same for some of my friends, just that I guess that aren't in that world. So I kind of get most of my support from my PhD buddies at the university. So finding PhD buddies is... is... What about you, Chloe? Are you close to your family? Are they helpful? 
Uh, yeah, I'd say exactly the same as Tiffany. And I kind of look at it from the other perspective. Like my sister is a financial advisor. She's passed a load of exams and she keeps talking to me about tax. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what she's talking about. So I imagine it's the same way around. But I'm quite lucky because my housemates have got uh, four of them and two of them do PhDs. So we just kind of chat away about that, which is really nice. What about you, Brendan? Because you're, you know, different circumstances. Do you yeah. have children or a... No, no, I don't have any, well, I've been teaching too long, so I don't have any children, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, I've family, not really, and actually since we've been in, well, we were in lockdown, and we're still having everything online, I think it's adding to that isolation, because I really can't um, communicate directly with any of the sort of people I've developed a friendship with um at at the uni and um yeah so i feel um it would be great to be able to go back and chat and do all those sort of things but a lot of the people that i was really close to have gone back to other countries as well so it's quite tricky really i think it's also i mean i have to be honest and say i think it gets a bit harder as you get older you know yeah. talk, talking about how you how you feel and how things are tough I, Certainly, I, you know, these are personal things that I'd rather bottle, you know, I bottle those things up. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't go, I don't go looking for support. I, I, maybe it's a male thing as well. I mean, that, you know, men are always being told they should be more open with their emotions and, and talking about how they feel, perhaps. So for the, I think that counts probably the same for people that are doing this a little bit later in life as, as well is, we all need to be pushed to to talk more about that. Do we need to push you, Brendan, to, to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm happy to talk about it, but I just haven't really got anyone to talk about it with. Um, so that's a good that's a good question there. So so where do we you know if if you haven't got family and uh, peers around you to talk to, where can you where can you go when you're struggling when it's late at night and you're stressed out about I've got to do this or how am I going to approach that mm. I think finding that group of of people who you can talk to somewhere is important somehow it is and shortly before lockdown it was sort of as that was happening we had to do our annual progress review and that was um, a 4,000 word literature review, an abstract, an updated proposal, a practice review, and a 15 minute presentation. And it was a bit of a nightmare because I couldn't access any libraries and I couldn't really access anyone to talk about it. Even my supervisor was a bit sort of um, not that available. So it was a really stressful time. Um, yeah, and that was when I thought, I, I'm not, I, if I get through this, I think I'll get through the whole thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well done. Con well, well done and congratulations for pushing, pushing through that and to everybody else who's in that, that situation. I, 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 I do think Twitter isn't all awesome, right? I mean, Twitter, Twitter can be a diabolically terrible place, but I think in terms of creating communities and connecting people and and finding people in a similar situation to you i think it is an amazing tool for that job and i think spending an evening reaching out to people and making contacts can make a can make a difference um you know i i there are so many people doing um phds around art in dementia and i bet you, it's just finding them and i think twitter particularly is a an amazing tool for that purpose um, yeah, I should get on to that. I, because I, I'm on quite. Oh, a, I say this, you don't. I know you're not I, on Twitter, are you? I have a few social media. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say another good one for connecting with other PhD students is Reddit. So, if you ever have, like, I'm sure there'd be people who are doing probably a very similar one on Reddit because Reddit's got everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's another good avenue. Oh, great! Thanks, thanks for that, Chloe. That's helpful. Um, yeah. I've just got so many, I've got Instagram and WhatsApp and 
I mean, with Zoom and Teams and all these things, I keep thinking, do I need any more social media in my life? <laughs> well, and, and, and there are people turning away from Twitter. I, I completely agree. But, but I think in terms of finding people uh, who are like you, it is a fantastic tool and look, look people up. And, and I think don't be afraid to, to directly message people either in there. I think I've, I very rarely get negative replies from people who you've approached to say, hey, I'm interested in this thing you're doing. Can you tell me more? I think you, you do get positive responses from people. I mean, necessarily for, you know, it depends on what kind of support you're looking for, but making connections and talking to people and somebody to bounce ideas off of, I think it can be a, a useful a useful place. Families are um, good for a shoulder to cry on, but not really great when you're saying, do you think this is, this is the right form of words to explain this in? Um, <laughs> and it might be different for, I mean, obviously I'm conscious that none of us here are lab-based researchers as well. And I think, I think it's probably slightly different if you're going into a lab every day and doing experiments and, and working slightly differently. Um, supervisors are helpful too. Um, it's a bit of a personal question, but I did have something in here about money and stipends and things like that. Is that, do you feel that is something that's kind of constantly there in the background? Is that, because money concerns can become all consuming and I think student, you know, still students don't earn lots of money. Is, is that been a worry for you all? That's uh, Felicity. Have you got everything ordered? Because we know Chloe's got her sister's ad financial advice. <laughs> and, she, and her sister's earning all the cash so hopefully she's exactly. you know <laughs> passing a few quid chloe's way <laughs> sharing the love yeah. you don't have to go into detail but i'm, I'm just interested right i mean yeah. you know do you um, take is, does it help when you've got all those things sorted out yeah i think definitely um yeah so i've managed to save some money um from the job i'm currently doing because i was just working from home so i wasn't paying for rent or anything which my mum was very good about <laughs> um, so yeah i managed to save some money and then it's the um programs funded as well so i should be all good that's good i know there's lots of talk recently about stipends and trying to make them more frequent and things like that you know somebody was getting them quarterly do you do you get yeah tiffany you get your stipend quarterly yeah. it was quarterly they've just changed it um this so from october it will be monthly so it was i mean it, you would have to kind of split it into three and i only like give myself a month's worth each month because i need to know how much i've got each month and it is my stipend is just about enough to live off but i also want to save some money so that's why i'm doing the extra work and i just tuck that away but it's yeah it's it's livable I mean, that's just it. I mean, you, you can't, it's all good and well saying, you know, take time to yourself, take time off, do things. But if, if you're also as well, just about managing to make ends meet, it, that extra stress in the background, I think probably seeps through into your, into your work as well. And mm -hmm. being able to sort those things out is, in, is important. But again, universities are great places to go for advice. The money support and things like that is there to go. Don't be afraid to talk about money you know it's one of those you know if it's tough you, you've got to say so hey this is this is quite hard don't be living on baked beans and, and <laughs> never going out um and brendan you're you're not living on baked beans are you no i'm doing um i'm still doing a fair bit of supply teaching and ah. i am also um occasionally work for the University of Brighton running a, a unit of work for MA students. So I'm sort of managing actually. Are you selling a few pieces as well? Doing a... Um, well, I was meant to have an exhibition on the, when was it? The 31st of March, but it was cancelled because of the pandemic. So I got an email from the gallery saying, well, we can have it in 2022 or something. So I thought... No. Forget that. <laughs> do it on, do it online. Well, yeah. honestly, we've we've talked for ages, and we're kind of definitely coming to the end of our time now. But before I think about wrapping up, um, I just wanted to come to each of you in turn to to kind of just for your piece of advice, single piece of advice for somebody that's going to be starting their PhD this summer. For single piece of advice, for Felicity, 
And then Felicity, we're going to come to you for somebody who's six months behind you. So what, we'll come to you first, Chloe. Oh, me first? Yeah, well, you're on the oh. your top right-hand corner. Did you need another minute to think? Please, yes, I'll come okay. back. <laughs> Tiffany, what, you're next. Um, yeah, I definitely know what mine is. It's just ask people how to do things. If you've got to do something new, um, find someone that's done it and just ask them to show you. And that's a really good way to make new friends as well. So, yeah, that's definitely my piece of advice. Just ask. Thanks. Everyone, everyone's been in the same boat as well. Someone's helped them beforehand. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Brendan? Um, I think I would suggest that you start looking at sorting out your bibliography quite early. And um, whether that's an online forum or um, you just do it on, in, a, in a document. But yeah, definitely. Um, for me, that, that was something that came up as I had to do that. Um, annual progress review with my literature review. It was so useful to have that all just in front of me on Zotero and I could just basically cut and paste everything and just keeping abreast of that, of everything you're reading, really. I would agree. Chloe. Okay, so Brennan's still mine. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I would say the same thing. So I actually asked uh, everyone in the office for top tips when I started and everybody said the same thing so I've got loads of tables with every single paper I've read my notes on it what I think it's going to be important for later on um, whether or not it's useful and now I've got like a massive document and it's I'm, I'm pretty proud of it <laughs> but yeah, has it got has it got colored tabs and everything and, and... <laughs> um, oh could do that's a I might, I might pin it out then. <laughs> so that's when I, when I'm unsure, when I'm uncertain, I'll make sure that my spreadsheets are brilliant. You know, they're yeah. <laughs> putting formulas in there to add things up that don't really need to do it. Just to make yeah. you could make a work of art out of a spreadsheet, Brendan. Um, I, I would agree with all those yeah, things. Okay. I think t seeking assurance through through reading. I think if you do find yourself sitting there being uncertain, I think it's never a waste of time to read around the subject that you're working on. That's always going to be productive, always make notes. And I think talking to your supervisor and just at least agreeing, like, you know, setting yourself some, some not too specific, but some broad objectives to say, right, what, what do I want to achieve in the first three months, say, yeah. breaking it down into that way. And then, and then work around it. If that means you work at in the evening best or you work at the weekends best or, you've got jobs to do as well. You've kind of got those objectives down there and you can, you can work around them and, and do turn to your family, do seek out those colleagues and people doing the same thing as you. And Felicity, your piece of advice for that. So I, I'll tell you who you're giving advice to. Um, so uh, you'll have probably heard, I'm trying to think about when this podcast comes out. Um, by now, you will have probably heard a podcast with um, somebody called Morgan Daniel, who is an MSc student who we're going to be working with in the next year. She's doing our MSc at UCL um, in neurosciences as well and psychology and things. And she's going to be sharing her experience over the coming year of moving from Glasgow down to London and what it's like to move to a new place and what it's like to study through our MSc. And she's going to stare a story with us through the Dementia Researcher website with some blogs and podcasts. So what would you say to Morgan, who's moving down to UCL uh, this week? I think she's moving today, in fact. Um, I don't know. I'd say, I guess she already kind of knows her supervisors and stuff. So that was like one of the main things was maybe to get in contact with your supervisors if they haven't already got in contact with you and just kind of, you know, chat to them about what happens um, first, like what they can expect for their first weeks. Um, as well, my supervisor is really good at putting me in contact with um, other people that she supervises that have said, you know, they're happy to um, have a video call with me and stuff and just kind of, if I've got any questions that they could give me any advice. Um, so yeah, that's kind of just building that support community early on before you've even begun. I think that's a good idea. And I, I do some work at Sydney University and I talked to some PhD students there last year who um, she always takes her supervisor cake 
every meeting. <laughs> so uh, supervisor was Yunhee, and every time she meets, she takes her a cake, and her, like she's her favourite student. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a good idea. Taking cake to your supervisors is good. <laughs> well, listen, it's been fantastic talking to you all. Thank you very much, uh, Felicity, Chloe, Tiffany. Mm -hmm and Brendan. Uh, profiles on all of our panellists are available on the website where you'll find details of their Twitter, including Brendan's, who's immediately going to go away and sign up to Twitter today. Um, you can find details on all of them on our website, including more about their work. Um, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about more about your work, because it all does sound fascinating. So I hope you will join us again, maybe, to talk more specifically about, about your work rather than rather than the studying and potentially to come back in the future as well and to tell us how things have changed as you move into your second and, and third years and how you get going Felicity. So thank you very much everybody. We, um, if you would like to ask any follow-up questions everybody's on Twitter um, and we also as I think um, somebody mentioned Felicity mentioned perhaps or was it Brendan we do have a WhatsApp uh, early Career Researcher WhatsApp Community Group, which you can access via the website. If you go to the uh, Ask an Expert section, you can find details on how to join there. Um, and I think that is a fairly safe place where people can come and ask it questions. It kind of goes through busy and quiet periods, but please do take a look, join. And I think there are people from all across the world in there. So even if you're having a dark moment at 2 a.m. when you can't decide what to write, you can post in there and I feel certain somebody would reply. And, and it's, it's a good community. So thank you very much again to all of our panelists. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of our podcast through the website. Um, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, everywhere where you get your podcasts. And you can ask your smart home speaker to play the Dementia Research podcast as well. And um, it will do that. So thank you very much again, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all again in our next episode in two weeks' time with a group of people who've come out the other end to be sharing their advice. So thank you very much. Have a good day. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.